So, so far in the book of 1 Thessalonians, in this letter that Paul has written to this church in Thessalonica, we have been looking at, and the theme seems to be, the coming of the return of Christ, his second advent. His first advent, he came in the form of man. He came uh, fully God and fully man, the son of Mary, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. His whole life lived, pleasing to the Father. He never sinned once. He came to be the payment or the propitiation for our sins, uh, the blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, to make us right with God once again as it was in the garden in Genesis chapter 1. And so he's come to restore mankind. But at his second coming, there seems to be a different reason for that. He's no longer coming to offer us grace and forgiveness. At his second coming, he's coming for judgment. And he will come wearing white robes and he'll be riding on a horse. And when he comes, there won't be a mistake of, I'm not sure if that was him or not. Uh, What Matthew chapter 24 says is that you will know that it's Jesus returning. Just like the lightning when it chases across the sky from one direction to the other, everyone will see it. And so when he returns, he will return for his church. And then he will also return to set up his earthly kingdom. And he will judge all of those who have rejected his son. And so he's given us this age of grace that we live in where everyone has the opportunity, no matter how far they've gone in rebelling against God, to be saved and forgiven and to be set free from the the sin and the bondage of sin. And so as we get into today's chapter, I want us to remember that Paul has written to the Thessalonian church and he was only at Thessalonica while he was planting on his missionary journeys. He was only at this church for three weeks. He was there for three weeks, and one of the topics that came up during those three weeks was the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And so I think one of the things that makes us distinctive as a church is we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And if we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, how should that affect how we live in this present life that we've been given? And so as we look at 1 Thessalonians, I want you to understand that in the first chapter, he's, again, I've repeated this every week just to kind of ingrain it into you, uh, that this is the beginning of the church. He reminds them of their birth as a new fellowship in their area. And then in chapter 2, he talks about the nurture that he showed towards them when he was planting the church, and he talks about the nurture of a father and of a mother. And one of the things I was convicted about as I read through that, I didn't hit on this, but he actually makes assumptions about the role of a father and a mother in the household of faith. Of a father, he says in chapter 2, uh, verse 10, he says, he says of his conduct, he says, you are witnesses and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So he assumes that the role of a father is to be blameless and to behave themselves among those who believe, but also for a father towards his children to exhort or strongly encourage or comfort. And we're going to get into that word today. The word comfort means to come alongside and to call out. So he says to come alongside and to call out his children and to charge them or challenge them 
every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who has called you into his own kingdom and glory. So a father's role is to come alongside his children and to comfort them doesn't mean to make their life cushy, which is what we tend to do as parents. We just want to make it as easy as possible so that our children will have proper conditions to grow up and be godly. But the word comfort doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean like we would think to get a barca lounger for our children to, to be able to grow up in ideal conditions. What it means is to come alongside them and in every situation to call them to obedience, not to us, but to the Lord. And so in the same way, a mother, her role is also assumed. Her role is found in chapter 2, verse 4. I went to men first because uh, men to me need sometimes to be addressed first because, you know, we don't fulfill that role of coming alongside and calling out our children and comforting them in the way that the Lord calls us to. But as men, or excuse me, as, as women, ladies, as mothers, the assumption is that, that we don't seek our own glory, verse 6, from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles, Paul says, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And I could see many times where many times we, uh, our own children, we don't necessarily cherish them. We wish they would stop doing everything that they're doing to wreck our lives. And they do. They transform. They change our life. All of a sudden, what we want doesn't matter because we have children that are depending upon us. And so as mothers, to cherish our children, not to worship them, but to cherish them, and to do the same thing, to nurture them, to be gentle among them, and to nurse them, to pour into their lives from our lives. And so we, mothers and fathers, we can both do these different roles, but specifically he's calling mothers and fathers to act in this way towards their children. And Paul says, I did this for you guys as a church. So that's the overarching theme. But then in chapter 3, he talks about how they were established as a church. He says they were established to the teaching of the word. They were encouraged by other believers. Paul had sent Timothy to encourage them, to establish them, to pour into them the word of God. And then he prays for them at the end. So in chapter 4 and 5, he talks about how the church should walk. Here's how you were born. Here's how you've been nurtured. Here's how you were established. Here's how you should walk. Now that you've been given the firm foundation of the scriptures and of the fellowship of believers through prayer and the encouragement of other believers, he says this. He says, here's how you should walk as believers. And so in chapter 1 through 12, last week we looked at the fact that they are to walk pleasing to the Father. And he, he tells them how to please the Father. In verse 1, he says, We urge and exhort you um, in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. He had spent three weeks teaching them how they ought to walk and how they are to please the Lord, to be blameless. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He says, This is the will of God. Your sanctification, and we talked about what that meant last week. Sanctification is just a $5 word that means to be constantly in the process of being set apart for God's use. And we use the example of dishes. Dishes are set apart for eating on by cleansing them and preparing them and, and drying them off and then putting them on the table and, and setting them apart to put food in. Now, there are some vessels around our house 
I'm trying to think of one right now, like uh, an oil pan that you would not eat food in. It's set apart for a different use. It's set apart to drop oil in from your vehicle and then put new in. Or to set under your car because it's always leaking. You know, either way, it's set apart for a different use. We've been set apart to be used by the Lord, but we also are not all finished and perfectly ready for that. So God is constantly setting us apart and cleansing us and, and finding new areas where we need to grow so that we can be even more useful for the next season of life. And so as he says this, he, he pleased that they would find out and be purified by the Lord. But notice, uh, he's talking about living pleasing to the Father, and that's not always easy. Uh, we oftentimes hear that God wants us to be pleasing to the Father, and so we go, okay, God, I'm going to do it. I'm never going to mess up again. My own daughter, when I call her out on disobedience, she says, I'm sorry, Daddy. I'm never going to do that again. And I nod and go, uh-huh, yeah, okay. She's going to do it again, right? Because what she doesn't know yet is that we cannot be obedient to our parents or to the Lord without the Lord's help. We cannot be transforming ourselves. We just can't. I'll do better is just a misnomer because we can't do better unless the Lord changes the source from which we're doing things. And so because we can't do it on our own, we need him. But say we do get it. We understand that God needs to change us. And when he changes us, all of a sudden our lives are transformed and we start living for the Lord. Here's the temptation to go, why am I doing this? Even King David, as he writes the Psalms, many times he would look at his life and go, I'm, I'm following the Lord, I'm doing what's right, and yet my life hasn't gotten easier. In many ways, it's gotten harder. And then what happens is you look out over the world and you go, everybody in the world that's living for themselves and their own pleasures and desires and lusts and they're deceiving others and they're backbiting and they're destroying families and they're running over people with cars, everything's going okay for them. How come I'm not blessed and those guys, everything's working out? Am I doing all of this to please the Lord in vain? Am I wasting my time? Could I be enjoying my life better? And I would answer to you maybe for the short term, but not for the long run. And so Paul, in chapter 4, he transitions and he starts to talk about the comfort of the Lord's coming. He says in verse 9, Verse 3 through 8, he talks about the will of God being your sanctification. By the way, I was asked by someone yesterday, where is the will of God written in the New Testament? Because I said it was three times, and I told you guys to dig for it. Now, I know of one person that contacted me and said, I see it more than three times. Well, this morning, I did a little better search, and apparently there's four. One is in Ephesians 5, verse 17. One is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, I think, or 15. And then the other two are in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, and 1 Thessalonians 5, somewhere. I can't remember the verse on that one. But uh, 19, did you say? 8. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, 18. So I was wrong. So test all things. When I teach you something, check it out, because I've been wrong once now. <laughs> Several times, but you know, I say that in jest. Uh, so my point is, he says, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. He talks about sexual immorality. Now we are not to walk in that like the Gentiles do. 
Uh, and, and in 1 Corinthians, it talks about the, the ones that have walked in sexual immorality. He says, now, don't forget that this is where you came from. Of such were some of you. He says, so don't judge other people, but extend the Lord's mercy and grace. And call them out, uh, not in an ungentle way, but lovingly so that they can be healed. But then he says, God has not called us, verse 7, to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this command does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning, he says, brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So there's a promise that goes along with this living to please the Father. He says, number one, your relationships are going to be right with others. You won't be a busybody sticking your nose where it doesn't belong. You'll work heartily as unto the Lord. You'll mind your own business. You'll aspire to lead a quiet life. But then he, which would kind of tend to make us think, okay, we just need to mind our own business, be in our own spot, stay in our own space, and don't get involved in other people's lives. But then he goes on to say that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, that you would have a proper relationship with people, that you wouldn't be nosy, but you would seek their benefit. And in doing so, if they ask you for a reason, that, for the hope that lies within you, or if they ask you for advice on how to deal with things, then you can respond with godly counsel. He says that you may walk properly toward those who are outside. And the added benefit is that you may lack nothing. As you work with your hands, as you use the skills God's given you, you will, be, you will not be without. You'll have everything that you need. You won't always have everything you want, but you will have everything you need. And I say this because in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus said. He said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the things that you need will be added to you. So if you'll work heartily as in the Lord with your hands, he'll provide everything that you need in one way or another. So he now turns the page. He says, but in contrast, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. That's nice, right? How many of you don't want your people around you to be ignorant? <laughs> we know, none of you know ignorant people. I do. You know, but ignorant just means to not know okay? It doesn't mean that they're an ignoramus. It doesn't mean that they're fool. Uh, many times people are foolish and they're around us because they just don't know. So they need somebody to help them in their ignorance and inform them. Now, knowledge doesn't transform people, by the way. Just educating people doesn't make life better for them unless they apply it. Wisdom is knowledge applied. And so if we can inform people about things and help them to put those things to practice, what we do is we bind up and we set things right by our actions and by our comfort and encouragement. But he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. He's talking to believers concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and that he rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And so Paul had taught them about the second coming of Christ, but they didn't fully understand it. And to be fully honest, I don't either. But what I do know is what Scripture has to say, 
And in this case, there seems to be a confusion about the coming of Christ. And many of them had relatives who had passed on before them, who had died. And he says to them, don't be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. There was a group of people coming in and saying, hey, if someone dies before Jesus comes back, then they don't get to go to be with him with us who are still alive. And of course, Paul's like, that doesn't make any sense. And then he goes on to explain why. He says, don't be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. The, the idea is not that they've fallen asleep, like they're physically asleep and they're not awake, but the idea is that they've fallen asleep in the Lord. And really a better word for that is don't be ignorant concerning those who have moved on from their earthly tent, this body of flesh, onto their heavenly body, which is eternal. And Paul talks about that in Romans. He talks about this heavenly tent that God is going to prepare for us, that when our soul goes to be with the Lord, it puts on incorruptible. We are now wearing corruptible bodies. We, hopefully you know that by now. You know, that, that this body, it, it just is constantly dying. And, and there's always this groaning of, man, why is my body worn out? I feel like I'm really still 18 to 25 in, inside, but when I get up in the morning, I feel my actual age, which I'm not going to tell you, so there. But my point is, is that our bodies, they're wearing out. But the, the heavenly tent that we're going to put on is going to be one that's eternal, that can stand to be in the presence of the Lord. But he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again... And as Christians, this is a core belief that Jesus died, but that he's not dead anymore. That by, according to the power of God, he's been raised from the dead. He says, if we believe that, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So those who have fallen asleep, those who have passed away that are in Christ Jesus, they will be delivered through death, just like Jesus was, that he, he rose again. For this, verse 15, we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, we won't go to be with the Lord before those who have passed on before us. And then he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who have gone to be with the Lord will rise first. Now, Paul wrote something else that seems to contradict this. In Corinthians, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So what do you mean the dead in Christ are going to rise? Aren't they already there? Well, here's the deal. They're already there, but their body somehow meets up with them. And I'm not quite understanding of that because this scene, we're inside of time. But do you know God's not inside of time? He's eternal. We can't imagine anything without a clock. I don't know about you guys, but I can't. I'm always looking at the clock going, okay, what time is it? Okay, do I need to wrap this thing up? Have I gone too long? You know, that's Sunday morning for me, believe it or not, even though I don't seem to pay attention to that. But when it comes to being in the presence of the Lord, it's eternal. It's the ever-present now. When God told Abraham when God told Moses his name, he said, I am, meaning that he always is, he always was, and he always will be. Does that make sense? It's hard for us to understand because we're inside of time. There's a then, 
There's a now, and there's a that will be. There's a future. So what he's saying is, he says, this is the word of the Lord, that we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout inside of time, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then, after that, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be in the presence of the Lord. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So you can imagine, and many of us can, because we've lost loved ones, that if someone could come along and say, well, uh, they don't get to go because they didn't stay around long enough for Jesus to return, they're going to miss out on it. Paul says, no, that's not the case at all. That's not how it works. Anyone who's gone on to be with the Lord before he came back is in his presence right away. But somehow it's all going to work out that when Jesus comes back, he's going to gather up his saints and he's going to take us with him to heaven. And then when the judgment, when the new kingdom comes, says Jesus is going to return seemingly another time, but he's going to return with 10,000s of his saints, that's what Revelation says, he will have to first have gathered us in order to bring us back with him when he comes with his armies to set up his earthly kingdom, which we will be a part of. We'll get to be stewards over that. So um, there's a lot there, right? But Paul's main purpose is to encourage them that those who have gone to be with the Lord before his coming will also be gathered with us at his coming and we will go to be with him. Now, many people would scoff and say, well, here's the deal. Uh, They said Jesus was coming back in Paul's day, and it's been 2,000 years. So are we really supposed to live in light of the imminent, it could happen any day, return of Christ? Because 2,000 years has gone by, and he's not back yet. I think we're believing in something that might be a little foolish, a little far-fetched. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24, because in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus spoke uh, quite a bit on his return. He's speaking of his return. Why? Because he's getting ready to leave. And I don't know about you guys, but my 15-month-old son or 16-month-old son, when I walk out the back door, he looks at me and he goes, like, where are you going? Bye, Dad. He always says bye to me, which apparently I leave all the time. That's all he remembers. But as I'm walking out the back door, he says, he looks at me like, oh, you know, he's, he, everything seems unresolved to him. Like, what's going on? Why are you leaving? And yesterday morning was like that. And I was like, what do I do? He's about to throw a fit. He's going to start crying. Mom's still in bed. She's going to have to wake up. He's going to be upset. So I looked at him and I said, I'm coming back. And I gave him a big hug. And then he goes, bye-bye. He's good. All of a sudden, everything was fine. And I really think that that's what Jesus is doing for us. When he gives the Olivet Discourse, they don't yet understand that he's leaving and that the way that he's going to leave. But he keeps telling them, I'm going to be crucified. They're going to kill me. And they're really struggling with this. Can you imagine if you gave up your whole lifestyle to follow this guy who's coming on, he's telling about the kingdom of God. Man, I'm following the right candidate. I'm following the right king. He feeds 5,000 people with like nothing. He multiplies it. And then he, he heals people. He gives sight to the blind. 
He's, he's taking care of all the ailments of the world that we live in. He's, he's setting them right. I'm, I'm going to give up all to follow this guy. And then he goes, by the way, I'm going to be crucified. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't be my king and be dead. That doesn't work out. And so Jesus tells them, he says, I'm, I'm going to come back. So in the Olivet Discourse, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. Now remember, down the road, he's going to ascend from the Mount of Olives, which is just across the valley from the Temple Mount. And as he is going to ascend from this place, he tells them here, I believe, because when they come here and watch him ascend, he wants them to remember the words that he said, I'm coming back. But what do they do when he ascends into heaven? They stare at him, they look, and they're like, holy cow, he's gone. And then two angels show up and they go, what are you guys doing? Why are you staring up into heaven? Don't you know he's coming back? He said, they said that because they should have known. He told them. They're reminding him, hey, he said he was coming back. Get busy. What are you doing? He's coming back. We don't know when. And uh, so in Matthew 24, he says uh, in verse 3, says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? I like that they ask this question because I have this question. And so I get to get their answer. You know, I, I don't get the benefit of being there physically with Jesus and go, hey, what are the signs of your return? But these men who were simple asked the question. And so we benefit from their, their not understanding completely. And so he answers, he answered and said to them, take heed or listen closely that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. <laughs> We've had that happen, right? Uh, people show up on the news and say, I'm Jesus, and I'm back. Or, you know, and they're always crazy, and they always make the news. Like, where do they find these people? And they put them on TV. Uh, but don't let them deceive you. And uh, we also have uh, entire religious organizations that claim that they know the true Jesus. Uh, Mormons. Uh, Jehovah's Witness. They, they have this misunderstanding of who Jesus really is because it doesn't agree with what Jesus said even. And so, um, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Definitely we've experienced that. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines there will be pestilences, great amounts of disease, earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. Do you know what sorrows means here? It's not like people are just sorrowful. The word literally means birth pangs. If you've got an old King James, it might even say that. Birth pangs, the beginnings of sorrows. Picture it like Braxton Hicks. You know, those, those birth pangs that start and they're just kind of practice ones. But he says all of these things are actually just signs of the beginning of sorrows, the, the sign that, hey, someone's getting ready to have a baby. But this is the signs of the beginning of God getting ready to return through his son for judgment. He says, then they will deliver you up, verse 9, to tribulation, and they will kill you. In our time, we're seeing more martyrs for the faith of Jesus than we ever have in the previous years. It's ramping up. He says, they will, they will uh, deliver you up to tribulation, and they will kill you. 
and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then, verse 10, many will be offended. Now, think about the day and age that we live in in our country. What does it take to offend somebody? This much. Now, many times there are things going on that we are doing, even as believers, that are offensive for all the wrong reasons. So we need to check ourselves to make sure that the things that we're offending people with are actually hills to die on. But that said, many are offended by many things, um, but it's a double standard, right? Uh, if you believe uh, in Buddha, or if you believe in, uh, in you know, uh, if you're a Muslim, if you're any kind of faith, as long as you believe that there's multiple ways to God, people are fine with it. But if you believe in Jesus, who says, I am the only way, I'm the only truth, I'm the only life, you're offending everyone. And I have to tell you that it was offensive to me at one point. You got to remember that. Someone calls you out and says, you're not living a godly life according to God's standard. It's offensive because we like our sins, frankly. Uh, But we also know that they cause us to be shamed. They also know that we can't quit them if we're truly honest with ourselves, that Jesus is the only way to fix that. And so he says, many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And we have just seen an example of this on Friday. I was reading about it this morning, this in Charlottesville, Virginia, where there was a rally going on. They were going to, heaven forbid, a statue is going to be taken down of Robert E. Lee. Now, no matter how you stand on that, I, I'm not here to talk about that. There was one group that said, we need to take the statue down. There was another group that said, absolutely not. And they showed up and they protested. Now, we have the right to do that in our country. We have free speech. But then there was also anti-protest protesters, you know, that we're, we can't stop. It just keeps going and stacking. So what the anti-protest protesters do, can you say that, they show up and they're protesting to protest. Well, these two groups hate each other so much There was an individual that showed up in a vehicle, a Dodge Charger, and decided, you know what? I'm going to wreck this thing up. They were anti-protest protest protesters. And so they show up and they run people over. And my brother made an interesting comment yesterday. He said, you know, we say things and I don't think we really think them through. He said, when everything was going on in St. Louis, he heard so many people say, if you're going to protest in the middle of highway, I'm going to run you over. And that's what we do. We run people over. He said, that, that sounds good until you see people actually be run over by someone who's taken that thought and lived it out. Running people over to tell them you disagree with them is not useful because you're not reasoning with them. They're dead now. They don't get a chance to come to your side. And that's what we do. We run people over. And so, as you can see, this prophecy by Jesus fulfilled. Then many will be offended. They will betray one another. And they will hate one another. Remember, Jesus said that hate itself lived out is actually murder in the heart. It's where it starts. And so we see this lived out in our day and age on the news every day. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Think about it. We see lawlessness all of the time on TV. We see murder. We see war. We see death. We see hatred. And because of that, we grow callous to it. When you're constantly exposed to hatred and murder 
And it, we can't even blame the news because most of us are actually entertained by it on TV. We choose to watch murder. I still remember the night we were sitting there watching Miami Vice, like the, the reboot version of it. And my daughter was still young and she's staring at the TV. And of course, all, we, all of us are too, not thinking about what we're watching. And all of a sudden, I, I watched someone get point blank shot in the head. And I look back and my daughter's looking at it. And all of a sudden, I realized that's how the Lord feels when I'm watching it. He, when I'm entertained by the murder, the taking of a life that he gave in his image. Now, obviously, it's a TV show and it's not real, but it makes us callous to the very reality of blood and death and hatred and where it leads to. Jesus died a brutal death. When people watched him murder on the, murdered on the cross, do you know that it was very offensive to them? Do you know that it was something that they didn't watch every day? So they were like, oh my, there were people weeping. Now, obviously there were people going, kill him! But there was also a group that was weeping because someone they loved was being killed. And so my point is, all of these things are being fulfilled because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. People will grow callous to death. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then, he says, the end will come. So all of these things are taking place. And the, the only thing that I can see that has yet to be completely taken care of is that the gospel of peace would be delivered to all nations, tribes, and tongues. That everyone would hear of the gospel. Now, realize this, not that everyone would bow the knee to it, but that everyone would hear it and have the opportunity to receive it. Because here's the deal, when Jesus shows up to judge, many people go, I can't believe he's going to judge the nations if they've rejected him. But the reality is they're going to be judged for rejecting it because they've heard it, because we are responsible for what we have heard. And so in the same way, Jesus is going to come back. So verse 36 of the same chapter in Matthew 24 says this, but of the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only knows. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. Whereas in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. You notice the theme there? He says that several times. I'm coming back, and you don't know when. So be ready. And so I read that because he continues on to talk about this day of the Lord. He says, comfort one another with these words. He says, concerning the times and the seasons, chapter 5, verse 1, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. They were well aware of what Jesus had said. Many believe that Paul, knowing the sermon that he had given, was able to tell them what Jesus specifically said. 
For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Do you guys know that? That the, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. He says, you know this perfectly. He says, I'm well aware that you're aware of this fact. Now, I ascend to this fact, but I don't always live like this. I know this fact. Knowledge doesn't change things. Wisdom does. And so if I know that Jesus is coming back, how does that affect the way that I live my life? How does that affect my goals in life? How does that affect the way that I behave and interact with my neighbor? How does that affect me? Does it affect me at all? He says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains. Get it? See the connection? Sorrows, the beginning of sorrows. He says, they say peace and safety. Remember in Matthew 24, Jesus said in the days of Noah, they were saying peace and safety. Everything's fine. People were marrying, giving in marriage. They're going to their jobs every day. And then guess what happened? The flood. And they say, well, it caught them off guard. How were they supposed to know? Well, this is before the spread. Remember in Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel. And then it seems like they were building this tower to get to heaven. And as a result of that, God looked down and he said, there's nothing that they can't do on their own. They're never going to need me. So he spread them out. He changed their languages. But before that, Genesis 6, we have what seems to be the growth of unrest and lawlessness. And in Genesis 6, it says there, excuse me, Genesis 7, but in Genesis 6, verse 9, it says, um, the earth, or excuse me, verse 11, the earth was corrupt before God, the earth was filled with violence, so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he gave him instructions. He said, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and outside with pitch. And then he gave him instructions, specific measurements on how to build it. And it says in verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I've seen that you are righteous before me, before me in this generation. Take with you seven of each animal, a male and his female, two each of the animals. Basically, he was providing a way that he could judge unrighteousness on the earth, but also save a remnant of those who were listening to the word of God. So in the same way, here's what happened. There was unrighteousness. There was unrest. God was going to judge by water. And so he told Noah, build an ark. Now, we hopefully know that according to the New Testament, our ark, our deliverance through the judgment of God is not a wood ark. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. But in their days, unrighteousness was going so rampant that God wanted to save those who would hear his voice. And so what Noah did is it says in the New Testament, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, I read the story of Noah. I don't see him up on a soapbox. I don't see him teaching the Bible. The way that he preached righteousness is he did what God told him to do. He worked with his hands, and he built the ark according to what God told him to do. 
And as he did that, he was providing a way of deliverance. And as he was building the boat, and since it had never rained, when he built the boat, everyone would walk by and say, what are you doing? Imagine if somebody in the middle of Arcadia decided, or Arcadia Valley decided to build a big boat. Why are you doing that? People would come by constantly. If a new business comes into town and they leave the lights on all night, people are like, what are they building? What's going to be there? You know, I've been looking forward to the Mexican restaurant and it's not coming so far, but I'm still curious. So I drive by there and I go, where's Chico's? Chico, where's my chips? What's going on? I want Mexican within walking distance. I mean, come on. How cool would that be? But as he's building this ship in the middle of town, people walk by and they go, what are you doing? He said, well, there's going to be a flood. God told me to build this boat. And they go, you are not very smart. You're wasting all your time. Why are you building a boat? Well, you never even had rain. If you get a chance and you're really into science and you want to learn about the book of Genesis, read Henry Morris's book called The Genesis Record. In there, he chronicles how it must have been before the flood because before then they had never seen rain. So one thing, they're laughing at him because they're like, what's rain? And another thing, they're laughing at him because it never flooded. It, it seems that at the time of Noah, moisture would come out from the ground and put dew on the ground and cause the plants to all live. It was more like a rainforest. And then after the flood, they rely upon rain, the, the rain cycle, you know, the condensation, evaporation, the clouds gathering, and then the rain. So they didn't have that. So there was no flooding going on. There was just perfection. And as creation goes on, all of a sudden there's, there's rain after the flood. So he builds this boat. He tells everyone that there's going to be a flood, not a local flood, a worldwide flood. And the only way to be saved is to get in the ark. So he comforted people by coming alongside them and telling them to get in the ark. And the only people that went were his family. So as they were the only ones that went, they were the only ones that were saved. And in the same way, we have the same opportunity. Jesus is the ark. We've all been told, get in the ark. Get in Jesus. That's the only way to be delivered through the wrath of God. And for those of us who believe, we've entered in, we're trusting, we're doing what he's told us to do, and we're waiting till the time we can get off the boat, till the time that we'll be in his presence. So let me ask you, Are you coming and comforting people? Are you comforted by the second coming of Christ? And if you are, how has it changed your life? And are you coming alongside others and giving them the same opportunity to to be called out of the darkness and into the light? He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be vigilant and watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, those, excuse me, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation." The hope of salvation is to guard our hearts and our minds until the day of Christ Jesus. 
So when he says put on the helmet, not only is it a and a practical way to guard from the fiery darts of Satan trying to get in our minds and trying to get us to hear and believe other things, but it's also a reminder that we're trusting in Jesus for our salvation. But then he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, again, Comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So this word comfort is actually the word parakaleo. And parakaleo means just that, to come alongside. Para means with. And call one another out of sleep with these words. So maybe you're like me, and you find out that you're actually sleeping more through this life than you're awake and sober and vigilant. Uh, Take heart. Uh, the Thessalonians were too. But the, the other opportunity that we have now is to live awake, to walk in the light. Uh, words of comfort are what we need. And actually in 1 John chapter 2, it says this. 1 John chapter 2, um, verse 15, John writes to them these words of parakaleo, these words of comfort. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. He's talking about the world system. But we can be drawn away, can't we? We can be tempted by the world. And the world, he says, is passing away. It's temporary. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God will abide forever. So, our comfort is not one of escaping so much as it is being drawn and driven to obey. And so our comfort is in the hope of the fact that our time, when it is done, we are assured that our rescue will show up just on time, ready to take us with him. And those who have passed before us, and all those that we brought with us, we know many, hopefully, that have passed on to go and be with the Lord. And many of us, trusting in the Lord, are trusting in the fact that we will go with him. But let me ask you, how many are you going to take with you? How many are you going to take with you when he comes and returns? And then he says, wake up and uh, be called out of the darkness with these words. So parakaleo is the other word that we get for the comforter. And the comforter, spoken of in John by Jesus, was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the very instigator in our lives that came alongside, convicted of of our sins in the first place. And the Holy Spirit is also the one that uses us and fills us to come alongside and bring others with us. And so um, let me ask you, are there those in your life that you can come alongside and call out of the darkness? Not call to be morally right, uh, unfortunately, in the church, many times we're trying to get other people to live like us without introducing them to the one that made us live like we do. Uh, call people out of the darkness, not in a rude way of you're a sinner, but in, a, in the way of, hey, I see what you're going through, and I want you to understand that I have hope. You don't have hope. I have hope, and I want you to introduce you to him. He's a person. He's Jesus. And so uh, let's pray.